Well, I'm excited to be here. Take your Bible and open to Romans chapter 7. Hope you are. Romans chapter 7. Just want to remind you, uh, tomorrow night we have men's ministry, 7 p.m. Adult Sunday school room right behind us. 7 p.m. Romans chapter 7, we're in verses 4, 5, and 6. Romans chapter 7, verse 4, Paul says this, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, that you might be joined to another, to him who is raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. For while we are in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not oldness of the letter. So tonight in our study here in Romans 7, we're uh, in verses 5 to 6. We've come to these two uh, verses. We're looking at the issue of the law and the Christian and our relationship to it. We're looking at the continued uh, uh, benefits uh, uh, that come to us by justification by faith alone and Christ alone. Uh, we've seen one of the great benefits of justification is freedom from the bondage of the law, freedom from the bondage of the law and its ability to condemn us because of our union with Christ. That at the moment of our conversion, when we came to faith in Christ, verse 4 says, Therefore, my brethren, you were also made to die to the law, through the body of Christ, that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. So at the moment we repented, the moment we placed our faith in Christ, the moment we were united with him, married with him, if you will, who we once were in Adam no longer exists. Uh, our old self is dead. Our old relationships are dead. Now in Christ, married with Christ, in union with Christ, we've undergone a profound change. So we've entered into a completely new relationship, a new relationship to the law and a new relationship to God. The law no longer has any ability over us to condemn us, and now we are no longer enemies of God because we have an entirely new life and an entirely new purpose in Christ. Uh, that's what it says again in verse 4. We are to live, as it says uh, there towards the end of that verse, in order that we might bear fruit for God. That's our purpose. Now, how did it happen? Verse 4 again tells us, through the body of Christ, through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We lay a hold of him by, by faith, and we are, by our faith in Christ, we are imputed or we are reckoned the righteousness of Christ. Christ's righteousness counted to our, or credited to our account. His perfect righteousness credited to us. Therefore, before God, we are justified. Our sins are fully forgiven. The slate is wiped clean of every offense, past, present, and future. We're given the positive righteousness of Christ. Therefore, Romans 8, 1 says, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If that doesn't get you excited or tingle up your back, uh, uh, something, there, there's a problem, right? No condemnation, peace with God, tremendous truth. And again, it's all through the body of Christ. It's through the body of the person, of the Lord Jesus Christ, we receive the full credit for his perfect righteousness. We've done nothing to earn it. It's a righteousness that has been provided for us because of God, because of the person of Jesus Christ. 
through the body of Christ, through the spotless righteous one, right? Through the theologians would say the righteousness that, that we get from Christ is an alien righteousness, meaning that it's a righteousness outside of our self. The source is outside of ourself. Uh, therefore, and I think uh, Bruce alluded it to the, this morning, uh, the prophet Isaiah said, because of that, we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ, the garment of our salvation, clothed with the garments of salvation, wrapped in the robe of Christ's righteousness. Through the body of Christ, Peter says uh, that believers are brought into a right relationship by the righteousness of God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's all about him. It's about his perfect obedience, his perfect lifelong obedience. The one in the book of Galatians says he was born under the law. And it's through his substitutionary sacrifice, the shedding of his blood as our substitute. Again, the spotless lamb of God. Through him, we have obtained forgiveness. uh, We who place our faith and trust in him. Right, So we have the forgiveness of sin. We have the positive righteousness of Christ uh, because of the person of Christ. Again, through the body of Christ. So because of our union with Christ, our relationship with Christ, we're changed. Right? The, the one who perfectly complied with all of the commands of the law of God, conforming to all of its moral virtues, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who came and rendered perfect obedience to the law, the one who came and suffered the full penalty for sin on the cross, the one who not only died physically, uh, paying the penalty for sin, but absorbed the wrath of God for us, the wrath of God against our sin, the price charged to Christ's account, he fully pays our debt, and we are credited with his full righteousness, reckoned the righteousness of Christ. It's a tremendous, a tremendous uh, truth, a tremendous encouragement. Again, we don't do anything to earn this. God and Christ have done it all. Therefore, my brethren, you're made to die to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be joined to another, uh, to him who is raised from the dead. Uh, We looked at this last time, the great privileges that we have uh, being united with Christ. Again, married to Christ, as it were, in the analogy from the top of the chapter. So we're no longer under the penalty law, no longer under the condemnation law, the power of the law. Now we're under the care of Christ himself. We've come from the realm of uh, condemnation to the realm of grace. And we talked about the fact that our union with Christ provides for us an intimacy with him, a real oneness with him, a relationship with him that is developed and deepened over time, that we have security in our eternal salvation. I talked about that this morning. We have security with Christ because Christ has promised to raise us up on the last day. Christ has promised to never leave us or forsake us. Therefore, we come and we willingly submit our lives to him, our plans to him, to his leading, to the one who gave himself for us, for our sins, that we might be set free from the condemnation of the law. We spoke about the fact that when we come in union with Christ, that we take his name. We are Christians. It means something. It's not just what we believe, but it's who we are as Christians. Uh, Again, we've talked about the analogy. When you get married, you have two people who, uh, before they come in union of marriage, uh, aren't related. Right, and, and, and they don't have a relationship. They get married, and then that relationship is the biggest, the most intimate, the most legally binding relationship of all relationships. Right, And that's the same thing. We have the union with Christ. We have his name. Uh, and we submit our life to him, the one who gave himself. Uh, we in Christ lack nothing. God has promised that through his divine power, he's granted us everything we need to life and godliness. Uh, because of our union with Christ, we are presently, positionally, where Christ is. God looks at us already as a finished product that we sit at the right hand of God, sit right hand of Christ in the heavenly places. Uh, we're joined to Christ, meaning now that we're part of uh, God's son's family, we're part of God's family, God the Father's family. 
Therefore, we have full access into his presence. Uh, again, we, we're told that we don't have to ever be fearful or anxious for anything. We're told that we bring our prayers and petitions to the one who has promised to supply all our needs according to his rich, his great riches and his glory in Christ Jesus. I mean, it's just wonderful truth after wonderful truth piled upon uh, on top of each other. And we spent, again, a bit of a time looking at that last phrase in verse 4. It says that uh, you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, that you might be joined to another to him who was raised from the dead. That last phrase, that we might bear fruit for God. And I suggested to you a couple things, that bearing fruit for God would be, uh, at least in part, in the marriage analogy, fruit in the marriage relationship would be offspring. So fruit in the uh, analogy, uh, the, the spiritual analogy would be spiritual fruit, spiritual offspring. Uh, we are called to be uh, gospel proclaimers. We're called to be ministers of reconciliation. So fruit, in one sense, would be others coming to faith in Christ, disciples of other other men. I also suggested to you that bearing fruit for God would be to live a life of holiness, a life separated unto God. Again, transformed by the power of God, given to given us new life, right? United with the Savior. Now we live for God's glory, no longer for our own glory. Our life is for Him and Him alone. And that's what Paul's going to continue to talk about here in verses 5 and 6. And he's going to introduce a familiar theme that we've been working with uh, several times in Romans chapter 6, that we were but now. We were but now. It speaks to the change and the complete transformation of life, the complete transformation of character, the complete transformation of purpose because of our union with Christ. So again, in 5 and 6, Paul's going to speak about who we used to be, who we once were, and now who we are in Christ. So again, we have to and we must live different lives than before we were saved because we're no longer under the law, we're under grace. We're no longer in Adam, we're in Christ. We no longer bear fruit unto death, but we bear fruit unto God. So Paul is going to show us in this section again, because we're talking about the believer's relationship to the law, he's going to show us how the law could never and the law can never produce newness of life. Right? The law, keeping the law, can never produce complete transformation of a person. The complete transformation of a person in your life only comes by being united to the person of Jesus Christ. It only comes by standing under grace. It only lives, it only comes from living that life that God has provided for us, that newness, newness of life that allows us to bear fruit for God. So basically five and six that we're going to look at tonight is pretty much an explanation of what he just said in verse four. So he's going to explain to us our marriage relationship to Christ and why that marriage relationship to Christ was absolutely necessary. And in verse 5, Paul's going to remind us four things that were true. Four things that were characteristically true about our lives apart from Christ. Or four things or four characteristics that are true of the non-Christian. Paul says that apart from Christ, we were number one in the flesh. I'll give them to you quick and we'll work our way through them. We were in the flesh. Number two, we were living our lives in sinful passions. Number three, these sinful passions were continually being aroused by the law. And number four, these sinful passions worked unceasingly in the members of our bodies to bear fruit for death. In the flesh, living in sinful passions, uh, our sinful passions being aroused by the law, and our sinful passions worked unceasingly in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. That's the unbeliever's position. That's where we were before we came to faith in Christ. So let's look at the first phrase here in verse 5. He says, for, uh, for while we were in the flesh. Now, what does that mean? What, is that, what does the word flesh mean? Because it's used 
a variety of different ways in the, in the scripture. Uh, it, that word just flesh can mean mankind on a whole, as in Isaiah 40, uh, 5, all flesh shall see the all, all flesh shall see the salvation of God, all men. Uh, all flesh is like grass, Isaiah 40 and 6. Uh, sometimes the word is used in the Bible to mean the word flesh, to mean the body, the physical body. Uh, our Lord Jesus Christ became flesh and dwelt among us. He took on a physical form. Sometimes the word flesh is used in a moral or ethical sense, referring to the sensual parts of our nature. Uh, and, and when it's referring to that, it's always with an evil connotation. Uh, for example, Galatians 5.17. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, that you may not do the things you please. Ephesians 2.1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. And, and so forth. You are sons of disobedience. Verse 3, living in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath, uh, even as the rest. So sometimes it refers to our sensual nature, always with an evil connotation. But what does the flesh mean here in Romans 7, 5? Well, it can't be mankind. Now, it can't be all of mankind, because he's using it, Paul's using it to contrast who we used to be when we were in the flesh, right? Who we used to be before we came to faith in Christ. He says, but now we, who's we? We the justified ones. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about salvation, the justified ones. What are the benefits of salvation, right? We who are in Christ. So so the, the term here is not referring to all of mankind, and it's certainly not referring to a body part. That's not how he's using it. So again, the flesh or in the flesh refers to who we were before God saved us who we were before God justified us, who we were before we were married to Christ. So in the flesh, that phrase means our old unregenerate self. Who we were when we were unredeemed. And and, and the, the term in the flesh here, Paul is using that to describe who we used to be, what the Christian used to be, what was true of their former life or our former life, but is now no longer true of us. We were but now, right? It's no longer true of us. Now, in the flesh is where we used to be, and in the flesh is where the unbeliever lives. That's where the natural man lives. In the flesh is the sinful sphere of fallen mankind. In the flesh, a person who lives in the flesh is not a believer. Take your Bible and just put a mark there and just flip over a page or so to Romans 8.1. Now, you're going to see the word flesh used a couple different ways here, but I really want to get to verse 4. I'll give you a little bit of editorial on the way, but you, verse 4 is really what I'm aiming at, 4 and 5. Romans 8, 1. There is there now for, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, as an offering for sin, and he condemned sin in the flesh. All he's saying there is that what the law couldn't do because of the weakness of, 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 uh, of the flesh, our weakness, we couldn't carry out the law. We couldn't obey, right? Christ comes in the likeness of sinful flesh. He puts on a body. He's not sinful, but he comes in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Verse 4. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled. Listen, in us who? 
in us who are saved and us who are justified, in us who do not walk according to the flesh. We don't walk like we used to do in the sensuality of our lostness, according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For verse 5, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. The mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God, it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not you. You saved ones. You justified, right? You're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Okay, I'm going to stop for a moment and ask you, what is a mark? What is a mark of being a believer? A mark of being a believer is you are now united with Christ and you are now indwelt by the person of the Holy Spirit. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Okay? I'm going to talk about that in a moment. I talked about it a few weeks ago, but I'm talking about it in a moment. At conversion, you're united with Christ. You don't need a second blessing. Hey, brother, have you been filled with the Holy Spirit? Oh, I don't know. I haven't had an experience yet. Well, okay, I may just help you out. You don't need an experience. Because everybody who comes to faith in Christ... Right is, is, is filled with the person of the Holy Spirit and dwelt by the person of the Holy Spirit. Right? So Paul in Romans 8 is saying, look, there's this dichotomy. It being in the flesh is the complete, the complete opposite of the person who's in the Spirit. Right? So in the flesh, again, means mankind is unregenerate, corrupt nature and sin, under the dominion of sin, polluted to the very core by a sin in his being. So in the flesh is mankind apart from Christ, apart from being united with Christ, apart from being indwelt by the person of the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? Romans 8, tremendous, tremendous. I can't wait till we get there. It's a tremendous uh, portion of Scripture. Now, I'm going to stop for a moment, and I've kind of told you what it means. So, in the flesh means who we used to be. Let me tell you what in the flesh does not mean, and what it doesn't mean. It In the flesh is not some kind of secret code word for the so-called carnal Christian. That's to say that in the flesh does not refer to a Christian who is sinful. There is a popular, and I've talked about it before, but there's a popular, although biblically inaccurate, teaching known as, quote-unquote, carnal Christianity. It's probably been popular in the West for about 90, 95, 100 years or so. And what it does is it mistakenly divides humanity into three classes— and I almost guarantee if I ask for a raise of hands, almost every one of you would say, yes, I've seen it. You most all of you have seen the tract that promotes carnal Christianity without saying I'm promoting carnal Christianity on the heading. It doesn't say that, but that's what it's promoting. And it has three circles. And in the three circles, there's a throne in the middle, right? And what it does is it divides mankind into three categories. You have number one, you have the unregenerate man, the natural man, the unsaved man. And self... Sometimes you see it with a little, little throne, a little S on it, right? Self is on the throne of his life, and his life is in chaos, sin is everywhere. The second circle, you have what is called, again, the carnal Christian. The Christian still has self on the throne, but Christ is somewhere in the circle, right? He's somewhere in, in the mix. He's not in charge, and the person's life is still in chaos. And the only difference between the natural man and the carnal man is that Christ is somewhere in that mix of... Uh, a, a person's life, right? But his life hasn't changed. And then the third little circle is, is the spiritual Christian. He, he's the one that has self off the throne and, and, and Christ is set on, on the throne. 
right? And his life is in order. Have you seen that? Am I talking crazy? Have you seen it? Right? It's a pretty popular uh, track that was handed out. I, I think it was by Campus Crusade, if I remember. Right? And all of this topic falls under what is known as non-lordship salvation. And it's the erroneous teaching that people promote that when you get saved, Jesus can be your Savior, but not your Lord. I accepted Jesus as my Savior, but he's not like my, my Lord. Maybe you've heard that somebody say that. Now, the Bible says, I always like to refer to the Bible because I like to have sound footing to say something. But the Bible says this, Acts 2 and 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain, listen, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. Maybe that was too fast. I'll say it again. God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. Listen, men do not get the opportunity to do what God has already done. We don't get to defy the person of Jesus Christ. God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. Right? So God has said this is the, the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he, he is Lord. He is, he is the Christ. And the gospel calls sinners to repent. And by faith follow Christ. To submit your life to his authority as the Lord. Because that's who he is. He's the Lord. And repenting and turning away from sin. And submitting to Christ and following Christ as Lord. Is not adding works to salvation as some people have erroneously charged. Because, listen, I'm going to give you a profound statement here. Turning from sin is what Christians do. Okay, turning from sin is what believers do, true believers do. Along with willingly submitting their life to Christ. Hebrews 5.9, Christ, having been made perfect, became to all who obey him the source of eternal life. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that Christ is the source of eternal life to those who refuse him? To those who refuse to obey him? To those who are in active rebellion against him? The answer is, of course not. He's going to be their judge, not their savior. God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. Turning away from sin is what true believers do submitting themselves to Jesus Christ and following him and acknowledge him as Lord is what true believers do. Our life is not our own. Did, did I not read, and I didn't even write it, did I not read that the Lord Jesus Christ says, you want to follow me, take up your cross. The little medallion around your neck? No. I said, you need to die. Now again, popular Christianity doesn't like this kind of Jesus. I get it. But this is the only Jesus there is. This is the Jesus of the Bible. And Jesus of the Bible, all, like I said this morning, makes these demands of people who really want to follow him. Right? You've got to give up everything. You've got to submit to him for who he is. You don't get to pick and choose whether you like it or don't like it. Again, I, I mentioned that this morning. Now, again, this thing of carnal Christianity is an error that separates justification and sanctification but with two distinct acts separated by time, rather than one simultaneous reality for the true believer. And we talked about this a few times ago when we were in Romans chapter 6. And I said, look, this kind of teaching comes out of Methodism. It comes out of, uh, from John Wesley. It comes from Arminian theology where we supposedly choose God. And if we choose God, then we're never absolutely certain uh, that we're saved because it's always, our salvation is always tied with our actions and what we do or what we don't do 
And again, it's a misunderstanding or a separation of justification and sanctification that leads to, and I told you, it leads to Christian perfectionism, entire sanctification. Sometimes it's known as the second blessing, uh, where sinless perfection is supposedly attainable in, in this lifetime. So, again, that teaching taught that there are two kinds of Christian. The average Christian or, or the lower Christian, the carnal Christian who just received sanctification, and then, according to this teaching, the higher Christian, the spiritual Christian, who is filled with the Holy Spirit, who has received sanctification. And, and again, I told you, this whole thing led to the holiness movement at the end of the 19th century. The higher life movement, the higher Christian life, the Keswick movement, it was promoted by men such as Charles D. Trumbull from the Sunday School Times, uh, Lewis Sperry Schaefer, C.I. Schofield, Dallas Theological Seminary promotes this idea, uh, along with Charles Ryrie from that same institution. And Charles Ryrie promotes this idea called dedication. Here's Charles Ryrie. He says there's perhaps no more important matter in relation to the spiritual life than dedication. Dedication concerns the subjection of my life to Jesus Christ as long as I live. Salvation involves the sin question, dedication, subjection. Before any lasting progress can be made on the road of spiritual living, the believer must be a dedicated person. It is the basic foundation of sanctification. Dedication is a complete crisis moment of self for all of the years of one's life, end quote. Well, no disrespect to Dr. Ryrie, but I challenge you to find the doctrine of uh, dedication anywhere in the Bible. Right? You're not going to find that. You're either obedient or disobedient. And again, according to this kind of teaching, this kind of idea, a person may be saved, but until that person has an experience where they dedicate their life to Christ, where they, listen, make Him Lord, and making Him Lord moves them to a higher plane of spirituality, Christianity, there's no true spiritual progress, and that person can remain a quote-unquote carnal Christian. Now again, I don't want to be unkind to anybody, but that's not a biblical teaching. It's just absolutely not a biblical teaching. That's your opinion. No, I try to stay away from opinions. I know you don't think I do, but I try to. Right? 1 Corinthians 1 and 30, By God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus. By God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification. Redemption. Right? Christ Jesus became to us righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. The word is hagiosmos. We would get our, basically, uh, our understanding of holiness from that word. Consecration, purification, the effect of consecration. The, the heart and life are changed. We, we are given sanctification by our union with the person of Jesus Christ and, and able to live a holy life. I didn't say perfect life, but I said a holy life. A life separate. Right? So the one who is justified is also sanctified. And again, the process of sanctification... It is a continuous operation by the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. He makes us more holy. He makes us to conform more to the uh, uh, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's always shaping us, right? And our affections, our behavior, our actions into the person of Jesus Christ. We're looking more and more like him. That's the promise of Romans 8, to conform us to the image of God's Son. So sanctification and conversion, or sanctification and justification occur at conversion. So that the believer is fundamentally different than the unbeliever. That's the point. Justification, forensic de- declaration, sanctification, right? 
a process that begins, a process that's ongoing, makes you completely fundamentally different than who you used to be, completely fundamentally different from the unbeliever. Right? So I've said this to you before, that justification is an instantaneous act. Again, it's a forensic act. It's a legal declaration from the justice, uh, the Supreme Court uh, of the, the universe. The God of the universe, the judge of the universe, uh, brings the hammer down and says, absolutely uh, not guilty and positively righteous because of my son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And at the same time, sanctification happens at least in the sense that the process starts. Let me ask you a question. Are, are you, we're not talking perfectionism, but are you more like Christ now than you were last week? Or how about a year ago? Let's do it that way. How, how about like three years ago, five years ago? Has your thinking changed? Have you got to the point where you go, man, I hate this sin. I used to do this sin all of the time, and now this sin really bothers me. When I first first came to faith in Christ, I used to do this sin, but it didn't bother me. Now it bothers me. What What is happening there? That's the process of sanctification. I, I wish I had time to tell you, but I'm not going to tell you. But I <clears throat> excuse me, talked to a young man the other day who was telling me how the Word of God has changed his life dramatically over the last um, eight months to a year. He, he told me that he grew up in a Christian home, grew up to a Christian university, when he did this thing and whatever, fell away from uh, the faith completely, and then God just started working in his heart. And, and, and then he had to know the truth, and he kept listening to the truth and understanding the truth, reading the truth. And, and, and then all of a sudden, he started noticing something. He said, look, six months ago, I swore like a sailor. And all of a sudden, it just stopped. I don't even know why it stopped. It just stopped. And I don't do that anymore. I don't want to do that anymore. And the things I used to think there were a problem with the Bible, it's like all of a sudden now I understand it. That's the process of sanctification. That's God the Holy Spirit drawing somebody to the person of Christ, conforming us more and more to the likeness, the image of Christ. That's where we're going in life, right? That's the process of sanctification. Now, uh, uh, because God has promised that he's going to redeem for himself a holy people. Again, he's going to continue to conform us to the image of his son. He loves his son so much, he wants us all to look like him. Right? All to be like him, to act like him, because he's the perfect one. So listen, the problem with the teaching of the carnal Christian is that it confuses the nature of salvation. 2 Corinthians 5.17, I've read it to you a hundred times during this series. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he's what? A new creature. Old things have passed, behold, new things have come. In fact, I was just talking with a different fellow a couple days ago. And he's saying, look, th- this verse, I don't know if this ever happened to you, but it happened to me, it happened to him. You, when God started working in your life first, early on, you'd hear one truth, and you'd hear it from this source and that source, and you'd turn the radio on, and somebody was preaching on it, and you'd pick up a book, and, and there it was in the book, or you'd pick up the Bible, and there it was in the Bible, and you'd turn the radio off and turn to another channel, and there was somebody else talking about it. Right? And that's what he was saying. He kept hearing this verse all the time. Therefore, if anyone was in Christ, he's a new creature. All things pass away. Behold, all things came, became new. And he said, look, you know, man, I'd always gone to church. I'd always, quote unquote, believed. But he kept being confronted in a short period of time with this verse over and over again. And finally, he came to realize that in spite of going to church, listen, there was nothing fundamentally different about his life. Nothing fundamentally new in his life. He was the same old guy he'd always been. He was doing the same things that he'd always done. And then he came into the conviction of the Holy Spirit 
that just be going, but that although he might be going to church, he wasn't regenerated. Right? He wasn't truly saved. And, and the problem with the, the teaching of the carnal Christian is that it's a false teaching that affirms people in their lostness. It confuses the true nature of salvation. It denies the doctrine of regeneration. It denies the doctrine of our union with Christ. I, I guarantee you, when you look in the Bible and you see somebody who comes in contact with the person of Jesus Christ, their lives are transformed or their lives are hardened. Nobody stays neutral. The Apostle Paul, Acts chapter 9, doing his thing, right? When he's Saul of Tarsus, persecuting the church. He comes in contact with the person of Jesus Christ and his life is rocked to the core. Right? He thought he knew what he knew and he thought he was doing God's work. And then all of a sudden he realized he was in a whole lot of trouble because he had just met the one who was the Holy One, the one who was persecuting. People's lives are transformed. When you come in faith to Christ, when you come united with the person of Jesus Christ, your life no longer remains the same. That's regeneration, that's our union with Christ. And listen, one of Satan's most disturbing abilities is to deceive people. To deceive people into thinking they're saved when they're really not saved. I alluded to it this morning, right? The most horrifying day that many people are going to hear who have attended church all of their life is going to come that fateful day when they expect to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into your ward or enter into my kingdom. And instead, they're going to hear those terrifying words, I never knew you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's a person who has lived his life or her life being deceived, and now it's too late. That's why God in his kindness makes such a big deal about his book, why he makes such a big deal about his word, because he wants us to know the truth, to come to a knowledge of the truth and be saved. The only place you can find the truth is in the word of truth, right? And it's the word of truth, I said it this morning, that confronts our religious errors, our, our cultural errors, our failed thinking, our fallacious understanding of what salvation is. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it look like to be a Christian? The Bible only knows two classes of men. Those who are saved and those who are not. The whole underlying theme of the book of Romans is that salvation produces a transformed life. Right? I mean, the first three chapters, we talked about that before, just absolute devastation of sin, man and sin. Right? But God justifies apart from works. And God has propitiated himself to the person of Jesus Christ. And salvation looks like something. It has fruits, peace with God, holiness of life, etc. and so forth. Freedom from the condemnation of the law. I mean, Paul just keeps piling it on. The theme of the book of Romans is that salvation produces a transformed life. So, so, so the believer cannot be justified without being sanctified at the same time. Listen, there's no crisis moment needed after conversion because the believer has died with Christ and now the believer lives with Christ and the believer must and will live a holy life, right? Romans 6, chapter 6, verse 1. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? We can't because there's something fundamentally different about us because of Christ. So here in chapter 7, Paul is not contrasting the so-called quote-unquote carnal Christian with a spiritual Christian. He is contrasting the unbeliever, who we used to be apart from Christ, with a Christian, who we were in Adam and who we are now in Christ. 
Now, since I'm running you on a rabbit trail, I thought it might take you a little bit further off the, off the path. So uh, I don't even know where you're at. It's probably in Romans 8, so keep turning. And uh, 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 go, go to 1 Corinthians. Let me just show you something. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. First Corinthians three verse one. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of the flesh, as to babes in Christ. The King James, the authorized version, says, I, brethren, could not speak to you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even babes in Christ. The word sarkikos is is the word. Fleshly, carnal, having a, a nature of the flesh, governed by uh, mere human uh, nature, not by the Spirit of God. NIV says, Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, or infants in Christ. Verse 2, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you are not yet able to receive it. Uh, indeed, even now you're not able. Verse 3, For you are still fleshly, King James, you are yet carnal. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly, are you not carnal? Now you're not walking like mere men. So somebody would come along and you go, no, no, I guarantee you. Somebody's come along, a lot of people have come along and say, doesn't this passage of scripture teach the carnal Christian? I've had more than one individual take me to task on great lengths on this verse of, of scripture, right? It says it, you're carnal. Are you not carnal? It's teaching carnal Christianity. And my answer to that, no, that's not what it's teaching whatsoever. What it's saying is the, is, is the Corinthians are behaving as if they're still carnal. The Corinthians are acting like they're still unconverted. The Christians are acting worldly. They're struggling with their flesh. They're continually succumbing to the flesh and to the world. They're falling into one sin after another sin, one serious sin after another serious sin. And almost the entire book of 1 Corinthians deals with that. Paul identifying and correcting their sins. And Paul is saying here to the Corinthians, you're acting like you're still unsaved. And I, brethren, cannot speak to you as, as spiritual people, but as to carnal, or men of the flesh, fleshly ones, worldly men, unredeemed men, but as babes in Christ. I, I fed you with milk and not solid food, for you are now not, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you're still not able. Paul had been teaching these guys probably about five years. Right? He started teaching them doctrine to his probably about five years earlier, but now they still need to have milk. Uh, they need to be fed with milk. They can't spiritually digest solid food. You, you are still carnal. You're still acting in the flesh. For where there are envy and strife and divisions among you, are you not carnal? Are you not fleshly, worldly? You're behaving like mere men. He goes, think about what you're doing. Think about your behavior. You're behaving like you used to be before you came to faith in Christ, before you were saved. You're acting like unconverted men. Listen, Paul is not affirming a status or a category called the carnal Christian. Oh, see, there's some carnal Christians. No, he is chastening them. He is rebuking them. Because they're, being, they're, they're, they're behaving as if they were unsafe. Now, you'll notice that nowhere in that text does Paul say, Okay, look, it's okay. I know you took Jesus as your Savior. We'll just wait somewhere down the road till you accept him as Lord, and maybe your activities will change. He doesn't say that. 
He says, what's wrong with you people? You're acting like you're unsaved. He's saying, look, your sin is inconsistent with who you have become in Christ. Therefore, your thinking, your activities, your behavior is intolerant. And that's exactly what Paul's been saying in Romans 7. The Christian is not who they used to be. The Christian must and the Christian will live life distinctively different from who they used to be. The Christian will live life distinctively different from the non-Christian. Because our union with Christ affects our relationship. Our union with Christ affects our life. I, I used to say it all the time when it was like, uh, uh, when, I, when did I teach this before? Like 15 years ago or 16 years ago, something like that. The Christian looks like something. Right? The demons believe, but the Christian looks like something. Right? The demons believe, and they're not transformed by uh, a knowledge of the truth. They shake, which is more than most people who profess faith in Christ do. But a true Christian looks like something because they've been transformed, because they've been united with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So now I'll go back to Romans 7. Romans 7, verse 5. For while we were in the flesh. So again, what does that phrase, in the flesh, not mean, right? It's not some kind of code work for, for so-called carnal Christianity. In the flesh is not a referral to a, a Christian who's sinful. In the flesh is who we used to be before we were saved, before we were justified, before we were married to Christ. In the flesh means our old unregenerate self, who we used to be. Something that, again, in Christ is formerly true of us, but no longer true of us. It's not an approved status. It's not an approved category. You are in the flesh Christian. No, it's not an approved category. It's not a carnal Christian. Right? So what else does the, the term in the flesh mean? Well, if you're in the flesh, Romans 7, 5... That means the person who's in the flesh is still under the law, still under the condemnation of the law, still under the penalty of the law. Look at verse 6. It says, for the Christian, the Christian, because a person who's in the flesh is, under, is not a believer, for the Christian, verse 6 says that um, we have been released from the law, having died to that which we've been bound. Right? Before we were saved, we were under the law, but now in Christ, we, we, we have a new relationship. We died with Christ. We rose with Christ. We've been released from the law. So again, there's a, a difference between the non-Christian and the Christian. So again, uh, uh, Paul, Paul is using this term like he uses it elsewhere. He used it in the same uh, kind of fashion we spoke to the Galatians. Right? What was the problem with the Galatians? Right? They got saved and they listened to the Judaizers. And the Judaizers came along and said, well, you know, it's okay for you to believe the gospel, but you have to always be careful when somebody says that. It's okay for you to be the gospel, but you have to add to the Christian life. Right? You have to add to that to be a Christian. You know, you need to get circumcised. You need to get circumcised. You need to keep certain portions of the law. You have to place yourself back under the yoke of the law to be right with God. Believe in Jesus is fine, but it's Jesus plus then fill in the blank. For them, it was the law. Jesus plus the law. Anytime somebody tells you Jesus plus something else, you know, a little red light on top of your head should go off, and that's error, right? That form of wrong thinking, the apostle says to the Galatians, Galatians 3.1, you foolish Galatians who bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing and faith? I don't know, I think faith comes by... Oh, thank you very much. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? 
right? You received your salvation as a free gift. It was the work of God through the person of the Holy Spirit by hearing the word of God. Are you now telling me, I'm sure he said something along that line, are you now telling me that you're going to run back under the old rules and regulations? Are you telling me, having been justified by faith, that you're going to run back under the the law and attempt to make yourself right before God by your own efforts? Are you going to trust yourself rather than Christ for your justification? Are you going to trust yourself rather than Christ for your sanctification before God? He says you are foolish. You foolish Galatians, who bewitched you? Didn't you see Christ publicly crucified? Right? It's foolishness. And listen, it's not only it's foolishness, it's disobedience to what we already know to be true. Anytime somebody comes and tries to put a yoke or a burden upon you that it's Christ plus something else, you need to run as far and fast as you can the opposite direction. Because it's not biblical teaching. Salvation is absolutely free, through, absolutely free through the finished work of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, that phrase, in the flesh, is mankind is an unregenerate, corrupt nature, living under the dominion of sin, polluted to the very core of his being, therefore not living in the Spirit, but rather living under the condemnation of the law. So again, I think it's important to, to realize that there are only two possible positions for every person born in the universe. You're either in the flesh or in the spirit. You're either saved or you're not saved, right? And the man who is, every man comes into the world born in the flesh. Every man comes into the world in a state of unregeneration, right? That's the entire lot of mankind apart from Christ. It doesn't matter how nice you are. It doesn't matter how moral you are. It doesn't matter how nice of a person you are. It doesn't even matter how religious you are apart from Christ. To be apart from Christ is to be in the flesh. To be apart from Christ is to be in the flesh and not in the spirit. Remember Romans 8. For the mindset on the flesh is death. The mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God. It doesn't subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You will not please God by trying to justify yourself or sanctify yourself by trying to put yourself back under the burden or put somebody else under under the burden of the law. It's only through Christ. Right? So again, the man who's in the flesh is dominated by sin, dominated by evil, evil, is living in the lust of his flesh, the lust of his mind. He's alienated from God under the condemnation of the law, under the penalty of sin, which is death, both physical and eternal, under the wrath of God. But not so the man in the spirit. Right? The man in the spirit, the man who's been saved, he's no longer under the bondage of the law. He's been married to Christ, joined to Christ. He's pardoned, justified, clothed again in the righteousness of Christ, no longer an enemy. God's son, God's daughter, a friend at peace. I mean, didn't we sing hallelujah, what a savior? Right? I can't remember the exact phraseology of that, that chorus, but my, what my soul was longing for is found. You want peace with God? Look at Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ satisfies everything. So we used to be in the flesh. Second characteristic. There was four of them. You're going, oh my gosh, you just took an hour to do one. That's all right second characteristic of who we used to be apart from Christ found the next phrase verse 5 for while we were in the flesh again in our pre-conversion days he says when, when sin was our old master right, we were slaves to sin for while we were in the flesh the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death what does that mean sinful passions now, now the word passions means natural appetites impulses emotions the word passions can be neutral. 
or passive. Passions can actually be either good or bad. But Paul says before we came to faith in Christ, the passions that we had were sinful passions. And ever since the fall of man in, in Adam, man's passions have a natural bent towards evil, an evil bias. Now, before the fall, which is kind of, I understand that, a little bit sketchy to, to tread, but before the fall, these passions were somewhat kept in check because man hadn't fallen yet. So in some sense, his passions were governed by a, a knowledge and understanding of a sense of righteousness before the fall. After the fall, that's where we're at. After the fall, the moment man sinned, instead of controlling his appetites, instead of controlling his passions, listen, his passions began to control him. And mankind took the the passions and perverted the gifts, the good gifts that God gave, the natural impulses that God gave. Take sex, for example. Probably can't think of anything more perverted in the world than the greatest gift that God has given in a marriage relationship, and it's perverted everywhere. I mean, you can go down the list of perversions just in the book of Genesis. It's just absolutely everywhere. Right? That, that's what happens in the fall. Mankind becomes controlled by what the Bible would call inordinate affections. Evil concupiscence is one of my favorite words out of the King James. Right? Say that three times. Right? Evil lusts, evil desires, driven by these evil lusts, these evil desires, these greeds, these perversions, driven by a a, a desire to overindulge in absolutely everything. So now, after the fall, all of mankind's passions have a sinful bent towards them. It's these sinful passions that drive men, that tempt men, that, that encourage him to commit acts of sin. While we were in the flesh, the sinful passions, listen, were aroused by the law. What does that mean? Our sinful passions were aroused by the law. Now, the sinful passions were in us because of the fall. And when the law is allowed to work on them, the the law excites them. The sinful passions, it excites the sinful passions, not to good, but to bad behavior. Now, does that mean that the, the law is created to produce these sinful passions? No. I mean, God's law is holy. The commandment of God is holy, righteous, and good. Romans 7, 12. The origins of these evil passions within us come from a heart that has fallen. The fact that we have a fallen heart, the fact that we're rebels, that we're haters of God, sons of disobedience. The law, however, the law which is holy, just, and good, in the heart of the believer, listen, only promotes more rebellion and a greater desire to disobey God. In the heart of the unbeliever, his sinful passions are aroused by the law and are at work in the members of his body to bear fruit for death. Now, the, the word work is ergero. We would use, uh, we'd get energy, our English word energy from that. It means to operate with power. While we were in the flesh, our sinful passions were aroused or stimulated by the law, and our desire for rebellion against God energized against the members or energized the members of our body, right? Our minds, our imaginations, our interests to bear fruit for death. Paul personifies fruit, and he says all of our actions apart from our union with Christ are only going to lead to an increased amount of sin, and they're only going to lead to death. All the works of a dead man are only dead works. All the works of a dead man are dead dead works. 
right? And, and, and death, uh, the fruit of death is physical and eternal. And so, so it's really an amazing statement, verse 5. While we're in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the flesh were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. Steve Lawson says this. Paul explains that these sinful passions were aroused by the law. The sinful passions are lust, greed, egotism, covetousness, envy that once dwelled in every unconverted heart. Paul says that every time God said, you shall not, it made the sinful heart want to do the forbidden action. Every time God said, you shall, the sinful flesh rose up in defiance against his command. The law provoked and stirred up the sinful passions. The fact that God said that we must not do something only provoked us to do it all the more. That's how sinful our flesh was. This is true for every believer before he was converted. No one was a special in a special category as a nice little kid. He did not have did not have any sinful passions. Even if a person grew up in the church and attended Christian Sunday school, there's still enough sinful passions controlling that life. While we were in the flesh, sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body. Again, Lawson. Paul specifies that the sinful passions were at work in the members of our body. This means they were constantly at work in the unbeliever's life. They they never took a day off. They never went on vacation. They never stopped sinning. They were at work in the uh, hard uh, to, they worked hard to oppose the law of God, whether by sins of omission or sins of commission. The sinful passions were rampant within your body. They were in the mind producing sinful thoughts. They were in the heart creating lust. They were in the eyes gazing upon that which should not be looked at. Uh, they, they were in the ears craving to hear gossip and slander. They were in the hands committing acts of sin. They were in the feet running to sinful places. They were in the tongue and the mouth speaking arrogant words. The sinful passions were working hard to bear fruit for death. The result was a rotten harvest of every kind of deadly fruit. This death was a spiritual death, a second death, which is eternal hell. Then he says this. He says, that was once the relationship to the law that every believer had before our conversion. The law was actually arousing our sinful passions. There are no pure desires within us to obey God's law from a perfect, proper motive. That's a tremendous statement. What was our relationship to the law before we came to Christ? All the law did was to stir up sinful passions. To make us do what God says don't do because of the depth of sin. Which means something profound. And I'll give you three things. Verse 5 has tremendous implications. I'll just give you three. First of all, because all of the unredeemed, if, if man is, if unredeemed man is controlled by these sinful passions, and he is, then the verse tells us something very important about the terrible nature of sin. It not only shows us the reality of sin's existence, which some people deny, but it shows us the reality of sin's existence, but it helps us to understand the tremendous power of sin. The the verse shows us that sin's not just negative, if you will, not just the absence of certain good qualities, but, but rather sin is active. It's an active force, a positive force, if I can say it that way. Sin masters the unregenerate man. Sin dominates him. Uh, sin is so positively strong in the unregenerate man that it drives him. It drives the members of his body to bear fruit for death. So sin is so powerful in the unregenerate man's life that not even the law of God, which is holy, blameless, and good, can stop him from sinning. That, that's the terrible power of sin that controls and dominates the unregenerate man. The law comes in and it arouses sin. And it stirs up sin to further rebellion. I've used the simple analogy before. 
The sign says don't step on the grass. The next response you make is what? Well, what's wrong with not stepping on the grass? I don't know, but I'm just not going to obey it. Right? That's the law coming in, arousing sinful passions. In fact, guess what? I'm not just going to step on it. I'm going to stomp on it. I'm going to kick it up. Right? Listen, next to God himself, sin is the most powerful, is the greatest power in the universe. Because not even God's law can, can, can deliver a man from sin's grip. The, the sin is so powerful. Secondly, verse 5 says this, that there's a limited value in teaching morality. A limited, morality, a limited value in teaching morality. Now, there's a lot of morality teaching going on in the world, and unfortunately, a whole lot of morality teaching coming into the church. What's morality teaching? Well, if we can only teach them the dangers of drug use, if we can only teach them the dangers of immoral sexual behavior, if we can only tell the Christians, be nice people and be nice to other people, everything will be fine because we're just a bunch of nice people, right? If we tell them, don't do drugs, don't do sex, uh, uh, immoral sex, they'll stay away from these things. That's the argument. But the question is, is that true? Not by opinion, but is it true according to verse 5? Can you tell an unregenerate man not to do something and expect him to not do that thing you tell him not to do? The answer is no, he can't do that. He doesn't have the power. He doesn't have the ability to stop the activity because that power of sin dominates the unregenerate man. And when you tell him not to do something, it actually drives him to do the very opposite. It, it, it arouses sin in him. It stimulates sin in him to do the very thing that morality teaches is trying to stop. Don't step on the grass means I'm going to step on the grass. Don't do drugs means I would like to do the... I never heard about that before. Maybe I should try that thing that alters your mind and does these kind of things. Right? That's what happens. James Boyce. He says, There's a type of secular teaching of morality that does more harm than good, particularly among the young. This is a bearing on our current efforts to teach sex education in the public schools. Morality can be taught by example, by discussion of worthy values... Uh, we can talk helpfully about honesty and generosity and fair play and uh, such things like this, but trying to teach morality by introducing young people or anyone else to behavior they have not yet heard of or know little about, like deviant sexual practices, for instance, or the use of drugs, does not prepare them to resist the sin, but only instills upon them a desire to commit the sin in question. That's a profound truth and probably written somewhere about 20 years ago, at least. And when he's writing about deviant sexual practices in the day in which he's writing, right, about the power and dominion of sin over the unbeliever, right, that we teach in the school, don't do this, don't do that. We've gone away from teaching on safe sex and don't do these things. We've now gone to indoctrination. The LGBTQ plus XYZI, whatever, uh, indoctrination. It's the promotion of evil. Titus 1 and 15 says, To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving... Nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. Listen, you cannot change a man's heart by giving that man more information. An unsaved man is not lacking information. Listen, he's lacking transformation. He's lacking newness of life. Nicodemus, you need to be born again. What the unsaved man needs to do is he needs to repent. He needs to turn from his sin. He needs to turn and follow Christ. He doesn't need some seminar on don't do this or don't do that because that's not good for you. He doesn't need a seminar on things he shouldn't be involved in. He needs transformation of life. 
So again, we've got to stop and understand the terrible nature of sin. We have to understand the futility of teaching morality to the unsaved. Again, you just cannot simply tell the unsaved man to stop doing something because it's bad. He doesn't have the ability or the power to do so. Somebody might ask, well, what, what about our children? Shouldn't we teach morality to our children? What about them? Again, it's certain, there are certain aspects of morality to our children are, are fine, such as generosity, fair play, etc., and so forth. But the most important matter with our children and whoever else we're talking to or whoever else we're teaching is, is not even necessarily do they know right from wrong. The issue with our children is do they know the Savior? Or are they Christians? We want to make sure if you have kids, you don't raise Pharisees, people who are just rule keepers, right? Uh, people who just obey rules. We want to see transformation of heart. And I would encourage you, if you're a parent and you have small children, do not pass off the opportunity to bring um, the Board of Education to the seat of knowledge and to instruct them in obedience and to instruct them in their lack of obedience that they don't have the ability to obey because they need a Savior. Not just because you have conformed their bottom to the shape of, of uh, of the ruler, and they're just going to keep the rule because they just want to keep the rule. All right. No, they, they need transformation. And every time you count one, two, three, if you don't do this, one, two, every time you do something like that or every time you pass up an opportunity to bring the uh, instruction, the rod to the child, you, you're not loving your child. Yeah, I mean, every time I swatted my kids, and I told you this before, and, and some of them got a lot more swats than others. Some of them got to hear the gospel a lot more. Right? I, every time. It, it was a gospel opportunity. You're commanded to obey. God gives you one rule. Obey your parents. When you disobey, you're going to be punished. And you can't... Here's your punishment. Now let me tell you why you can't obey. Because you're a sinner. You're in need of a Savior. We don't want to raise Pharisees. Right? We want to, we, we, we want to teach our kids right from wrong. But more importantly, we want to know, do they know the, the Savior? And again, apart from the person of the Lord Jesus Christ... The only thing that a, a dead man is going to produce is dead fruit, fruit unto death. And, and I think we, we, um, uh, uh, we forget that fact. And, and I think sometimes, uh, and I, I don't want to be out of line here, but I think sometimes we act like practicing covenantalists. What do I mean by that? I think sometimes we treat our children because they're in our family like they're already Christians. If they're a part of a Christian home, then they're, then, then they're saved. Uh, being born in a Christian home doesn't make anybody a Christian. Right? Uh, it doesn't make anybody heir of the covenant just because they live in a Christian home with Christian parents. My, my faith is not my child's faith. Every individual, we come through the kingdom. The, the narrow gate is a turnstile. It's one person at a time. It's not, a, it's not the, the broad way. Right? Every child needs to come to a knowledge of the truth. Every, every child needs to come to a knowledge uh, of their sin and their individual need of a Savior. And again, I think we need to be honest with ourselves, with our children or anybody else that we're, we're talking with who um, uh, claims faith in Christ but lives like an unregenerate man uh, irrespective of how many professions they've made, irrespective of how many times they've dedicated and rededicated their life, they're not, they're not genuinely saved, right? Because that's, that's so dogmatic. Okay, anytime you see somebody who's living as an unregenerate man, more than likely they are unregenerate people because there's a difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. There's a difference between a man who has no pulse and a man who has a weak pulse. 
And if you're united with Christ, and you're, if you're in union with Christ, there will be signs of life. There'll be at least a weak pulse. There'll be fruit. It may be small, but there'll be some evidence of that union. Because that's what Scripture proclaims. And the reason that there's so many professing believers uh, who still live lives dominated by sin is the reality is they're not saved. That's reality. And you say, well, can a Christian sin? Well, of course a Christian can sin, but he doesn't live in sin. It's not the habitual pattern and practice of their life. When a Christian sins, they hate that sin, and they want to flee from that sin. They want to flee to the righteousness of Christ. They want to be obedient uh, to the Savior. That's, that's the difference. While we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused in the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. The last thing verse 5 tells us, is uh, the function of the law, right? It just tells us that the law was never meant to save us, right? The law was never meant to save us. The law can't save us. All the law can do is stimulate or arouse our sinful passions in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. So then again, you ask the question, well, why was the law ever given? We went over this before in Romans 5 and 20. It says in Romans 5 and 20, the law was given that transgression might increase, that sin would abound. The law was given to define sin. The law was given to reveal sin's nature as, again, utter rebellion against God. The law was uh, given to expose the power, that the grip uh, that sin has on a man's heart. Uh, the law was given to unveil the sin's deceitfulness in our life as we deny the sinfulness of sin. The law number five was given to convict and to condemn us. And the law number six was to drive us to Christ, to show us our need for a Savior. Right? Galatians 3 and 24. Therefore, the law became our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. You are commanded to do this. You are not doing this. You need a Savior. Whether you're a little guy or an adult, that's the same reality. We cannot, we will not obey in the flesh. All the members of our body do, apart from Christ, is bear fruit for death. I mean, verse 5 is a profound verse. It teaches the dominion and the power of sin in the unbeliever's life. It teaches the utter futility of teaching morality to the unsaved and our utter, utter inability to save ourselves and all of our desperate need for a Savior, for, the, for Christ. Again, the law can't save you. All, all, all the law can do is cause you to sin to a greater degree. And again, the only thing that can save a man is the person of Jesus Christ. By in faith, believing upon him, the Lord Jesus Christ in his perfect life, in his atoning substitutionary uh, death, right? Uh, and, and apart from Christ, when we were not saved, when we were unregenerate, we lived in the flesh, we uh, fulfilled the desires of our sinful passions, these passions were aroused by the law, and these passions worked unceasingly to bear fruit for death, right? But thanks be to God that he saves us, amen? That's verse 6, very quickly. But now, that's how he introduces, that's who we were, but now. Now that we've been released from the law, having died of that, by which we are bound so that we might serve a newness of spirit and not oldness of life. But now I told you it's the gospel in two words. God's about to work, right? God's actions are, are being declared here. What we could not do, God's going to do. But now we have been released from the law. That's a contrast, right? That's a change between the Christian and the non-Christian. The man who's in the flesh is still under the law. We now have been released from the law. Again, there's no halfway Christians, there's no carnal Christians. We who are justified are released from the from the law, right? 
uh, we have been delivered from the law. What does that mean? Well, remember I told you back up in verse 1 of chapter 7, the law only has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. You get in a, you, you, you get in a, you drive your car, you speed, you get in an automobile accident, you die, the police officer is not going to put a ticket on your chest. You've been released from the law. You died. You died with Christ. You have a new life in Christ. The law only has jurisdiction over a person as long as they live. So when that person dies, he's released from the law. We've died with Christ. We're now united with Christ. He died. He rose. We died with him. We rose with him. We have newness of life because of the person of Jesus Christ. He pays our sin debt, right? His uh, death on Calvary releases us or delivers us from the condemnation of the law, right? So there's no condemnation of the law. We're no longer under the curse of the law. We've been set free from the works of the law, trying to earn our salvation, right? So again, if the law couldn't save us, it certainly can't sanctify us. If the law can't save us, it couldn't save us, it's not going to sanctify us. But we now, or now we, we here Christians, having been released from our old bondage to the law, having died to that by which we were formerly bound when we were in the flesh, here's the purpose, so that, or, or the reason, that we will serve, right? That we will serve. We've been freed from the law, not for license, not to go sin, that's rebellion, but we've been freed from the condemnation of the bondage of the law, that in Christ we are able to serve. So for the first time in Christ, we have the ability to obey, to obey God, to serve God, to bear fruit for God, as it says in verse 4. Delivered from the law, able to do the right thing, bearing fruit for the person of God. We have been released from the law, having died to that by which we are bound so that we might serve. We now become bondservants of righteousness, slaves of righteousness. Our, our service is not optional. That's why we've been saved. We're, we're not a worker who can say, well, I don't like my job. I'm going to quit and go do something else. No, God has saved us because he's united us with Christ and he's saved us to bear fruit for him and he saved us to serve him. We might serve him. Bear fruit for him rather than to bear fruit for death. That's the change that happens when a person comes to Christ. When we are in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law, we're at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we've been released from the law. We've died to that which we are bound so that we serve a newness of life and not in the oldness of the letter. What does that mean? Newness of spirit ju- just means uh, um, the Holy Spirit. Now we have the Holy Spirit now that affects us in our life. Uh, we've been uh, set free in newness of spirit and not oldness of the law. Uh, o- oldest of the letter, just referring to the law, written down. Right? We serve a newness of spirit and not oldness of Life means, again, that a person who is genuinely saved will produce fruit, will generate, a, produce a life that is fundamentally different from the non-Christian. Uh, and there, again, there has to be some fruit in your life. A fruitless Christian is an oxymoron. It doesn't, it doesn't exist. It's not possible. So if, you, if you're talking to somebody there, and I was thinking about somebody earlier today that claims to be a believer... And the question that I'll ask them, and when I see them again, not anybody in the room, just to set your, uh, uh, your mind at ease, uh, but I, tell me the fruit in your life. Because this scripture just says you're going to bear fruit. If there's no fruit, there's no life. Again, it may be small. The pulse in a man may be small, but a pulse is better than no pulse. There's a vast difference. So a Christian is an entirely different person than who he used to be. And it's all because of our, our, our union with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a tremendously encouraging truth, right? 
no longer under the dominion of sin, no longer under the condemnation of the law. Now we're set free to joyously serve God, produce fruit for Him. We want to see God honored. We want to see Christ glorified. That's the difference between the old and the new. That's the difference between who we were and who we are now in Christ. And and, and it's just a tremendous, tremendous truth that God um, provides for us, but a tremendous truth that, that Paul has taken a lot of pains to tell us so that we can know the benefits that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Our Father and God, we are thankful for that tremendous truth. We were, but we are, right? We were one thing, but now because of your kindness, because of Christ, because of the person of the Holy Spirit, we have been completely transformed and changed. We have a a new life, and we're thankful for that. Lord, help us to embrace that truth. Help us to live out these realities in our life as we honor and glorify you in all that we do. We praise you, our God. We're thankful for Christ, thankful for the truth that has set us free. In Jesus' name, amen.